Heavenly Father, we believe this to be your word and given to your people that we might understand it, and in our understanding, live our lives in accordance with truth and reality. I pray, Father, you would bless us this morning with an understanding of where Satan reigns, of his influence through human governments, of his bringing to himself in the beast worship, and how he hotly pursues your church. With these truths, Father, I pray that you would enable us to discern wisely our times, that we might understand critically and truthfully things that much of the world is confused over. And with this understanding, Father, as we live behind enemy lines, I pray you would give us the endurance and the faith in Christ to be faithful disciples of your Son. We want to be light and salt in this very dark place. Cause us to be that today, I pray. Encourage us with this great word of victory in Christ and enable us as one body to be a people here in the South Bay that bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. We ask, Lord, that you would use us to save many for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the title of the sermon is Behind Enemy Lines. So as soon as you hear that, you think, okay, uh, I, I think we're in for it. Um, and this is a hard sermon, <clears throat> probably one that uh, Jemai and Wesley will never forget, their first sermon hearing being baptized. Um, I wouldn't have picked this if I were doing topical sermons for you guys today, but we don't do topical sermons. We work through books by book, and this is where we are. Um, so we're in between the seven trumpets and we're going to get to the seven bowls, but we have this interlude, chapters 12, 13, and 14, where the Apostle John is given visions, several visions actually, and in each of these visions we get details. We get details about God's redemptive plan. We get details about life on earth between good and evil. We get details about the, the war between Christ and Satan, and today we'll see governments as they persecute God's church. And these details are supposed to make us wise. We're supposed to be able to hear these truths as we did last week. We saw how Satan failed to assassinate the Christ child and how he engaged in war foolishly against the archangel Michael and his angels and was cast out of heaven. These are all truths, my beloved. We would not know if the Bible did not tell us. And the Bible tells us so that we can, as God's people, live wisely, be discerning people. Not always saying, how could that happen? How could that be? What would, what would compel someone to do that? We don't make statements like that because the Bible tells us things that the world does not understand. Last week we saw in verse 12 it said, good news for heaven, bad news for the earth. Satan has been thrown down. This is where he now dwells. And he's been dwelling here since Jesus was victorious on the cross, and he will dwell here until Christ comes and finally defeats him and banishes him into the lake of fire. And so Satan's been, he's been sentenced to this time between the advents of Christ to dwell upon the earth. And he knows the war is over, but he's going to use all of his power and all of his authority not only to enslave mankind, to, to bring those who do not know Christ into submission to him and to the beast, but to persecute you, to come after you, because you belong to Christ. Satan hates Christ, and therefore Satan hates God's people. So our passage this morning, if, we, if we're willing to listen, and I, I pray that we are, it will bring clarity where there's so much confusion. It'll help us understand how the church has survived for 2,000 years. How is it that we are still here in 2023 worshiping God? This passage answers that. It'll tell us why so many governments throughout human history just simply hate people. They, the governments really hate the church, but they simply hate people in general. And we've seen that now for centuries. And lastly, I hope that we can see this morning that our call is to stay a course. It's to endure in faith so that God might be glorified. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Satan was cast out of heaven. This is where he dwells. He and his demons. This is where they hang out. And it just so happens to be in the presence of the image bearers, of those who were created in the image of God. And last week he was pursuing hotly the woman. And the woman, as you remember, is, that's the church. That's God's people post 
resurrection. And from the passage, I want to show you three simple things that I hope will bring clarity and encouragement to you. Number one, I want to show you God's provision, how he provides and perfect, uh, protects his church, always has and always will. Number two, Satan's ally, this beast. We're going to meet two beasts, one today. And then number three, the weapons of the church. How do we fight? If we're behind enemy lines, how do we fight? How do we fight well? How do we fight smartly? The theme of the sermon is this, how to survive and thrive behind enemy lives, enemy lines. How do you survive and how do you thrive as a Christian living in enemy territory? So let's, let's take a look. Look at verse 13. We'll begin point number one, God's provision, God's faithful provision to the church. <clears throat> verse 13, and when the dragon, the dragon we know is Satan, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is the church, who had given birth to the male child, and you now know that to be Jesus Christ, right? So apocalyptic language, not too difficult to understand. So Satan's thrown out of heaven, and he's furious. I mean, he's not pleased that he no longer has the ear of God. He's not pleased that he can no longer accuse the saints of God because Jesus, he took care of that on the cross for us. And so he's cast out of heaven, and for 2,000 years now, Satan and his demons have been persecuting, have been putting to death, have been tempting God's people to sin, working against the church and working against the gospel of grace. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. Now, hopefully by this point in time, no pun intended, that we get to the book of Revelation and you hear times, times, and a half times, or you hear 42 months, or you hear three and a half years, you're thinking always from the time that Jesus rose from the dead until he comes again in glory. It's this present age that we keep coming up against again and again. And so for this 1,260 days, which we saw last week, what we see here is the movement of Christ through the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Father to protect and provide for his people always. Always protecting for us. Satan and the dominions of darkness are after the church. God is protecting and providing for the church during this time. That means every time Satan attacks, God swoops in and he provides nourishment for us. It doesn't mean that we won't be persecuted. It doesn't even mean that we won't be put to death. The promise of provision here is that God will make sure that you what? That you stay faithful until the very end. That he will not lose you. That you will stay in Christ. And I love this imagery we have of the eagle wings where God rescues his people in that time of despair. You've probably all been in it multiple times when God comes down and he, he swoops you up and he picks you up and he carries you through that really dark time. If you're a hobbit or you're a Lord of the Rings fans, that you, when we talk about eagles, you're thinking of all these scenes where the eagles are sent in. Maybe in the hobbit it's the saving of Durin from the, and the others from the pale orc or, or the battle of Moranon against the dragon-like Nazgul's. If you remember those guys when they would come in, uh, Tolkien, he takes these eagles, this imagery of eagles sent from God directly from Revelation 12, and John takes it directly from Exodus chapter 19 when God was at Mount Sinai recounting, before he gives the law, God was recounting how he saved his people. And this is what he said, Exodus 19 verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you what? I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so this imagery spans time. We see it in the popular culture as well that God says, listen, no matter how hard Satan comes against you, no matter how hard the dominions of darkness come against my church, God says, I will protect and I will provide, period. And then he, he, he essentially says the same thing in verse 15 how he's going to protect and provide, but this time with the imagery of a flood. Look at verse 15. The serpent poured out water. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now remember, this is apocalyptic literature, so it's imagery to paint a picture. Literally, the dragon was not spewing out water. It wasn't a literal flood. Um, the imagery, though, it's the reversal of Genesis chapter 7, is it not? 
I mean, in Genesis chapter 7, God came along and he flooded the earth to destroy the wicked people. And then through that, he redeemed Noah. And yet here, Satan is trying a very similar tactic to attack those who belong to Christ. Look at verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. So unlike God's flood in Genesis 7, Satan's flood fails. He tried to destroy the righteous. In fact, God, this, this metaphor is so beautiful, the church is lifted up just like Noah in the boat. You are protected. Satan can pour out the flood. He can pour out the temptation, all the persecution, all the death that he can give against us. And God puts us in that boat of Christ and he delivers us safely to the shore. In other words, my beloved, no matter how hard Satan rages against the church, no matter what means he chooses to use to attack you, God's people, he cannot destroy the redeemed. He cannot. The redeemed will be victorious because we are victorious in Christ. And for 2,000 years, doesn't history bear this out? For 2,000 years, Satan has persecuted the church through false teachings, false prophets, false religions. In fact, some of the early heresies in the church, they went after what? The, the, the very character and nature of God. The triune God was a big issue in the early church. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the, the duality of the nature of Jesus Christ being truly man and truly God, battle in the church. Even the gospel itself, very early in the church, was attacked, all coming from Satan himself. We know during the Middle Ages that Satan used, without question, the Catholic church to virtually swallow up the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Dark times for the church we know that Satan has used higher education, even today, probably more so today than any other time. Going back to the 12th century, he's used higher education to come against God's people. He's used movements like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the sexual revolution of the 1960s, and what's becoming known as now the gender revolution of the 21st century, all used by Satan to enslave mankind and to rage against God's people who teach what? Teach to the contrary. We teach to the contrary these false teachings and these lies. My beloved, God has been faithful for 2,000 years against every single attack. And that should, I believe, give us great encouragement and great hope in the midst of such chaotic times. If you pay attention, you read the news, you hear things and you think to yourself, how could this possibly be? How could they say that? How could they do that? Do not be surprised. Satan is behind much of it. But do not be afraid either because God wins. For 2,000 years, that's a good track record, is it not? Do you think he's just going to stop now? That he, we get to 2023 and suddenly God fails? He can't protect his church? Foolishness. We know that he can. So when we read and we hear about, listen carefully, the demise of the evangelical church in the West, this is a big thing to blog about now. When, the, when people come along and say, you know, 30% of Americans now are, are identified as nuns. A nun is someone who has no religious affiliation at all. Or we hear about the exponential growth of cults and false religions like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, all certainly empowered by Satan, without question. Many Christians in the West talk about the eventual dismissal or, or extinction of the true church in the West, that it will disappear from the landscape. Now all the false teachings and the moral compromises that we have seen have certainly come against the church and many have come into the church. So we're not going to deny that truth. I would not say that the evangelical church in the United States is as strong today as it was 50 years ago. I think that we could agree upon that. But if we're going to interpret Revelation 12 correctly, and, and I think that we are, um, then it means that these attacks, although hurtful and serious, number one, they ought to be expected because we've seen it for 2,000 years, and number two, they ought not be feared because God always protects his bride. No matter how severe or how extreme or how different it is from when you were a kid, we hear that so much. It, when I was a boy, when I was young, it wasn't like that. Well, it was, it was just different. The attacks were different. God has faithfully 
done for the times, times, and half time for 2,000 years church history. He has protected his bride, his bride. He has provided for his bride, and he will always. He will always. That was Jesus' promise to Peter, was it not? Matthew 16, 16, 18, Jesus said to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and what? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Satan can't win. The demons can't win. The church wins because God provides. God has not and will not fail his people. He is the great protector of the bride of Christ. Now his protection is provision over his people does not mean that Satan will slow his pace. Just to the contrary, look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious. He's furious because God's protecting the bride, furious with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So God's faithfulness to protect his bride, those who truly know him, makes Satan what? It says furious. Furious, motivated, passionate to do anything he can in his power to cause you to stumble, to tempt you to sin, to get you, if he can, isolated, out of the body, all by yourself, to bring you down so he can bring himself up. And so we have, my beloved, these two, these two constants in human history. This would be a great class to teach, would it not, in history? Satan, through a variety of means, fighting ferociously against God's church. That's been a constant theme now for 2,000 years. And God, through a variety of means, lifting us up on eagles' wings, swallowing up the floods that come against us. God has, for 2,000 years, protected his people, guaranteeing our success. The church will stand. No matter how dark it seems right now, and especially here in the South Bay, in this unchurched, de-churched place, where we look around and say, where is everybody? Why aren't they in these churches? Well, just because we're small doesn't mean that we're vulnerable. God promises to protect us and provide for us. Now, if these two constants are in play, my beloved, and they will be until Christ comes, Satan attacking the church and God providing for the church. Does that mean that God's people, that we don't have to care about Satan's attacks? Does that mean we can just relax? I mean, if God promises to protect and provide, then we can just step back and whatever Satan's gonna do, he's gonna do. We don't have to worry about it. We can put down our guard. Is that good counsel? It's not good counsel. You probably are thinking of passages, Peter in particular, counseling against that. But there's another reason. I'm gonna show you point number two of the sermon I want to show you Satan's ally. Look at verse 17, latter part. Latter part of verse 17, it says, And he, speaking of Satan, the dragon, stood on the sea, on the sand of the sea. And so he's he's looking upon the sea, and the sea, it it symbolized, and was metaphoric for a place of chaos and death. Verse 1, chapter 13, John speaking. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now, <clears throat> you don't even have to be raised in the church to have heard about beasts, the beast, right? Have you not? I mean, oh my goodness, what the culture says about the beast. Um, you're probably going to be shocked if you don't know what the beast, this first beast anywhere is. Um, it's not going to be anywhere near as exciting as uh, some of those fanciful fictional books um, say that the beast is. We're going to see here the first of two beasts that John talks about, one from the sea and one from the land. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, if you know your Old Testament, Daniel, the prophet, talked about four beasts, and each one represented a particular government. And the four beasts, if you know, one, the first beast that was going to come against God's people and oppress his people was Babylon. The next one was going to be the Persian or the the Medo-Persian Empire. Beast number three, according to Daniel chapter 7, was going to be the Greeks, and beast number four, Rome. And that's the beast that John is seeing right here. The first beast that John sees coming out of the sea is the Roman Empire. I told you it wasn't all that exciting, right? I mean, you have these fanciful stories about these beasts being literal. It is the Roman Empire. It has ten horns and ten diadems. Diadems is a a, a nice way of saying a crown with jewels on top of it, right? You say, well, I know what that means now. We've already talked about this. You referenced it in Christ already. It was referenced to Satan. That means that this beast has power and authority, And it absolutely does. It has royal power. 
It has the throne of Rome and emperors behind it. This particular beast that John is referring to here. And it had seven heads. He said, what are the seven heads? Most commentators who understand the beast to be Rome, they were seven emperors. Seven emperors that served at different times, all of which did what? They persecuted God's people. And there's great debate on who those emperors were. I don't think that's the point. The point is that the emperors of the Roman Empire were going to persecute and put to death God's people, which is exactly what we see in human history. And these emperors have blasphemous names on their heads, and that's That actually makes perfect sense. Roman emperors loved to have themselves called things like Lord, Savior, and even Son of God. And if you remember from our early studies in chapters 1 through 3, we identified Domitian is the emperor ruling at the time that John's writing, and Domitian actually thought he was a deity. Every emperor prior to him thought that they became gods after they died, not Domitian. He said, no, I'm a god right now. And so he demanded his subjects to call him what? Lord and God. And if they did not, if they did not recant Christ and call him that, many were persecuted or put to death. So John describes here the beast, which is the Roman Empire. And then he describes the characteristics of the beast using metaphoric language again from the prophet Daniel. Look at verse 2. John writes, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now these descriptive terms, if you loved and enjoyed poetry or fictional writing when you were younger, they're terms to reveal the power of Rome, that Rome had power, devouring power, devastating power to come against the church, to persecute, to bring pain, and to bring suffering against the church. This was Rome in John's day. Look at the latter part of verse 2. And to it, to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. In other words, Rome, in the time of John, and every single brutal totalitarianistic regime, empire, government, emperor, king, since this text is saying, is being moved by darkness, given power and authority by Satan himself. In other words, the idea here is simple, and yet gives much, gives us a lot of explanatory, expla, expla, it helps us explain. How about that? Hey, it helps us explain lots of things in human history. Um, so, for example, in Genesis chapter 9, Governments were given by God after the flood to promote peace and justice and and well-being for God's people, actually to promote the gospel. Um, What we see here in light of Satan being cast down to the earth is his using governments for the exact opposite purpose. Satan comes in here and he used Rome and he's used many governments since to not only enslave mankind, but to persecute God's church. In other words, many governments throughout human history, and if you've studied governments or political science historically, you had to have asked yourself, why are so many governments so bad to people? Why is that the case? Well, John tells us because many are demonically influenced. Satan has given the beast, these governments, power to bring injustice, to destabilize citizenries to take away peace and, and, and prosperity and to prevent the proclamation of the gospel by persecuting the church. So then John tells us something about this beast. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is, oh, the debate on this is extraordinary. I'm going to make it real simple for you. The mortal wound was on one of the emperors, and the emperor died. And everybody said, now the empire will cease to exist. The empire is going to collapse because this emperor has died. And there's debate on which emperor that was. Um, It was very similar to the dialogue following uh, Ronald Reagan's resignation in 1988. People talked about the collapse of the United States because now Ronald Reagan was no longer president. Well, they were wrong. And and those who said this about the Roman Empire were wrong as well. Um, Not only did Rome live on, Rome continued to be one of the most powerful entities, even through the Holy Roman Catholic Church, in the history of the world. And it brought 
people then who worshipped the empire. They adored the empire and they looked up to the empire. Um, it says here the whole earth brought to worship. Look at verse 4. The whole earth. They worshiped the dragon, of course, is Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? In other words, Rome and governments like it for centuries have become so powerful and so prosperous that it's captivated millions to look not to their creator to worship, but to look to governments, to powerful governments, to worship their leaders and to worship the governments themselves. In other words, they gave allegiance to this one, they said, mortally wounded is now alive again, as though governments can be what? Immortal. As though governments will never die. Now you think, well, you know, these are just foolish statements. When they say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Those are words given to God, right? Who is like our God? Who can fight against our God? And yet they're saying that about governments. You say, well, this is so foolish. This is like extreme patriotism. I mean, this is like people who, who love their government so much that they're just going to bow down and they're going to worship, and it's demonically influenced. And I would say you're right, and we're not too far off the mark as a people here in the United States. If you had a chance to listen to President Biden's State of the Union Tuesday night, it just so happened to co coincide with my studying of this passage, and I was struck. I was struck by some of the things that were said. He kept talking about the United States being the greatest country in the world. And he, he said, there is nothing, quote, there is nothing beyond our capacity. Hmm, I thought that belonged to God. And then he said this, the only country, we are the only country that has emerged from every crisis stronger than we entered it. And most of the time when he would say something extremely patriotic, he would get a standing ovation from both sides of the aisle. And I thought to myself, are they not saying who is like the United States and who can fight against the United States? I think they were. I think we do. We lift up the United States and the government and we create a beast out of it thinking this is like the Lord. Whenever citizens of any country worship their government leaders, misery follows. Misery follows historically speaking. And John tells us three ways that the beast uses, Satan uses the beast to bring misery upon the earth. First, he gives them, the governments, a voice to proclaim blasphemous and arrogant words. You notice that? Look at verse five. So the beast now is the government, any government used by Satan to oppress people. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months between Christ. Resurrection is coming again. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. In other words, the, Satan gives the beast a voice. Governments have a voice. When governments speak, this 42 months is that period of time between the resurrection and his coming again. When governments speak, they generally speak against God and against the church and for themselves, do they not? I mean, that is the historical record. When you look at governments throughout human history, they usually exalt themselves, they exalt man, which is an exaltation of Satan, and they bring down God, and they try to dethrone him and diminish the church. Now, we already know that Domitian, who was ruling at the time of John, that he would bring Christians before him, and if they did not recant Christ and bow down to him as Lord and God, they were either persecuted, cast out like John on the island of Patmos, or they were killed. So we see this taking place certainly in the time of John. We see it throughout human history. The 20th century was remarkable in the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. The communist movement in countries like the former Soviet Union or China or North Korea or Vietnam or Cuba where we're certainly we would identify as modern day beasts. Governments given power by Satan to inflict suffering upon mankind. Most of these states, if not all of them, they railed against God by saying what? He does not exist. In the communist philosophy, God cannot exist. And so they actually taught that the existence of the creator was foolish. And if you believed, if you believed in God, it was a crime of treason against the state. 
Karl Marx, the philosophical father of communism, said that religion of any kind was the opiate, the drug of the masses, because there is no God. And in the Soviet Union, following the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, atheism became government policy, where the state, quote, engaged in government-sponsored programs of conversion to atheism. Conversion to atheism. Not only did, does the beast blasphemy against God and the church, but it attempts to lift itself up. Six years ago, in 2017, <clears throat> in China, Christian villagers were commanded by the state to take down displays of Jesus, crosses, and any gospel passages in their homes. It was part of a propaganda effort to, quote, transform believers in religion into believers in the party. In one province, Chinese Christians were instructed to replace pictures and displays of Jesus with posters of President Xi Jinping. Satan uses governments to exalt himself and to blasphemy God and the church. But this blasphemy goes beyond simply going against God's name. It goes against the church as well. Look at verse 7. It said, also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, this is a repeated theme. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelation. Satan here, though, using government's beasts to bring persecution and death to make war against God's people. And it's fascinating. In the Soviet Union, prior to the fall in 1789, uh, it was not technically illegal to be religious, but the Soviet Union went, took great measures to make sure that if you professed faith and people knew about it, you would be persecuted or you would be punished for it. They used lots of social pressure. They confiscated property, they denied access to jobs, and they made believers a ridicule in schools and social media. In fact, in 1925, the Communist Party founded, you'll love this, the League of Militant Atheists, whose sole job it was to humiliate Christians, to humiliate Christians, to make you not want to believe. So we've seen governments persecute the church, and it says here in verse 7, to conquer Christians. You say, well, wait a minute, what does that conquering mean? Does that mean that we, these are Christians who turn away from their faith? Not at all. We know that's God's provision. They will not. This conquering is to put them to death. It's not just persecution. You see, governments don't want to kill Christians. They want to use them for their own means, right? There's, there's lots of value in and the capital of people. But if we can't get governments that can't get people to suit their needs, they'll, they'll kill them. They'll, they'll put them to death. That is the conquering here in verse 7. In fact, in 2021, I don't know if this number seems high or low to you. It seemed high to me. It was heartbreaking to me. In 2021, 6,000 Christians were put to death. They were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. 6,000. Astonishing number for you, 80% of those were killed in Nigeria. Nigeria is not a place you want to go if you want to live as a Christian. They were put to death. So the beast speaks arrogantly in blasphemous words. The, the beast persecutes and puts to death God's church. And, and the last thing that we see here this beast doing in, in the latter part of verse 7 is ruling over the earth. Look at the latter part of verse 7. And authority was given to it, speaking of the beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation. So governments ruling over people and then the demand not just to be faithful citizens but to be faithful worshipers. Look at verse 8. And all those who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the beast. That's these governments. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now we already know that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, earth dwellers, those are unbelievers. And we get that clear distinction now because it's non-believers who will be subject to the beast and who will bow down to the beast, but not those who what? Not those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now we've already talked about this in the book of Revelation. This is all those from Genesis chapter three until Christ comes again who were ordained by God, predestined by God, to repent, believe, and be saved. Their names, your name, if you know Christ, is in this book. And therefore, you will not 
You will not bow down and worship the beast. You will not be subject to, as a worshiper, governments that you live under. But the rest of the world, John says, will be. They'll be captivated, not just subjects, but captivated subjects. The world honoring and worshiping and lifting up demonically influenced governments that we oftentimes will look at in the United States and say, it's such a bad government and they're such bad and evil leaders. Why do those people follow them? Why do they pay homage? When you see President Xi Jinping's million-man army, you say, how could they follow him? They say, well, you know, if they don't, then they're in trouble. That's true. That's how demonically influenced governments, they use oppression and tactics like that. But more so than that, John says, they worship them. Those who are not in the Lamb's book of life worship these governments. And my beloved, I would argue that foolish allegiance to political parties, to leaders, to ideologies, it's more than just foolishness. We see it here today. It is downright wicked. It's wicked. So we must not be confused. Anyone who does not worship Christ worships the beast. And therefore they bow down. And they follow the world system of power and politics and money, and in so doing, they bring honor and glory to Satan. So as Christians, we have to stop making statements like, I cannot believe that person believes that. I cannot believe they vote for that particular leader. Well, of course you can. If they don't know Christ, then they're worshiping them. They're not just voting for them. They're worshiping them because they worship the beast who belongs to Satan. For those of you who also watched Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response to the State of the Union, she used a particular word over and over and over again. Do you remember what it was? She kept saying, crazy. These people are crazy. These, these policies are crazy. Um, I think a better and more helpful word, although would not have been politically correct, would for her to say, these policies are demonic. They're not crazy. They seem crazy, but they're not. They're demonic. So when you see the President of the United States literally lying shamelessly and the entire chamber of the House and Senate standing up and giving standing ovations to the lie, it's not that they're crazy. They're worshipers. They're worshipers of that beast and they're worshipers of Satan. They're not crazy, my beloved. There are greater forces taking place. When you watch the State of the Union or, or the response to it and you see this and you're thinking, this is, this is maddening. It's evil, better, and it's worship. Do you, do you understand that? Is, that? is that part of your worldview? I'm asking sincerely because oftentimes Christians don't talk like this. We don't think like this, and yet this is exactly what John is telling us. Do you believe that many governments throughout human history, and certainly today, and very likely our own, are agents of Satan, exalting man and blaspheming God? Do you believe that? That's what John is arguing here. Governments influenced by Satan to persecute the church, to put to death God's people, to rule over the nations, and to demand worship. And where there is not worship, there is persecution. Living in the United States, even as, as bad as things have become, I think it's very difficult for us to use this language and actually embrace it. I do. I think that we struggle with it. Uh, it's been difficult for Christians to see much of human history has played this out. And, and certainly Christians living in, in China or Nigeria or Iran or Pakistan or Afghanistan or North Korea right now, they say, oh, absolutely. They would agree that their governments are demonically influenced. They would identify their governments as true beasts of Satan. This time between Jesus' first coming and his second is marked, John is telling us, by these visions, it's marked by Satan having been thrown down to the earth and using governments to malign God, persecute God's people, and enslave mankind. You say, well, that's a rosy picture, Pastor. You know, I, I hear this song, what a wonderful world. And I think that, and then you come up with this, and that kind of nullifies the lyrics of that entire song. It's a hard picture. I believe it to be real. I do believe that it makes, it helps us make sense of the world. 
we can see things differently through the eyes of Revelation 12 and 13 that those outside of Christ cannot see. The question, though, we must ask ourselves, if this is the case, if Satan is active and governments are being used to persecute the church, that means that we're living behind enemy lines, and that is a true statement. So the question for us, which Francis Schaeffer asked years ago, is how then shall we live? I mean, how, how do we live? If, if what you just described is real, how are we supposed to live in the midst of this type of, of evil? Especially as Christians, since he's coming after us. He's chasing after us. Last point, I pray you're still with me. Um, number three, the church's weapons. When we get to the end of John's description of this first beast, the Roman Empire, um, John does something really interesting here. He, before he describes the second beast, he, he pauses and he becomes a pastor. I'm sure you noticed that. He goes into pastoral mode and he wants to tell us, okay, then what? Look at verse nine and 10. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And then he said, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He gets it. Seven churches in Asia Minor are reading this and they're like, what? This is our life? This is the next 2,000 years of the history of the church? This is hard to hear. And so he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Pay attention. This is real. Now as Christians, we want to live in accordance with what is real, do we not? We want to be people who live in accordance with truth, not lies. And so Satan being cast down, pursuing God's church, using governments to persecute God's church, John says, you got to hear it, you got to understand it, and you have to live in accordance with it. Live rightly in Christ based upon this Christian worldview. Now again, living in the Western world, embracing, I didn't get this in my American government class in high school, and I didn't get it in my political science classes. My professors did not teach me that Satan was running about the earth, going to and fro, persecuting God's people. I never heard this until I read the Bible. right? So this is a contrary worldview to the uh, way that Americans are brought up. Um, so I get that it can be challenging. You, when we read and we hear about this, we think about other countries immediately, right? You think, yeah, yeah, I bet it's like that in Iran right now. Mm. Or I bet. And we, we don't think of it here. We don't think of it in the United States because we have, we've been riding on the coattails of our founding fathers now for 230 years. When the Constitution went into place, you suddenly had certain what? Liberties, civil rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's your God-given right. And then governments come along and they start to take away these rights and you're shocked. You're thinking, wait a minute. I'm supposed to have that. That's mine. That's guaranteed to me. You don't understand or you don't want to understand that governments, including our own, have an undergirding, a power that's demonic that want to take away your rights. Unfortunately, many Americans in their shock, many evangelical Americans shocked by this denial of certain civil liberties and rights today in 2023, we, we leave places like California or we leave New York or we leave the state of Washington because we don't think that we can enjoy our rights here. And we flee to other states that are at least for now a little more friendly. Now the Bible offers three ways to respond to persecution like this. Did you know that? Three ways. You can flee, you can resist, or you can stand. All three, depending upon the circumstances. Sometimes we're called to flee. When Jesus was speaking to the disciples in Matthew 10, verse 23, Jesus said, when they persecute you in one town, what? Flee to the next. So there are times when it's appropriate. In fact, that was exemplified, if you remember, in Acts chapter 9, Remember when, when Paul's in Damascus and there was a plot to kill him by the Jews and he got wind of this and the disciples, he became aware of the plot. Acts, Acts 9, 25, the disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall. They lowered him in a basket so he could get out so he wasn't gonna be killed. So there are times to flee. Other times were to resist. I mean, I mean resist in a civil sense. Acts chapter 22, 
Paul's in, if you, you remember this, right? Paul's in Jerusalem, the Roman tribunal, they're going to flog him. And, and Paul raises his hand when they've already stretched him out for the whips. And Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And immediately they stopped. So he threw down his citizenship card, right? So there are times to flee. There are times to resist. That's not what John calls us to here. He doesn't say run. He doesn't say resist. He says what? Endure. He says receive and accept it. In fact, I would argue, my beloved, that is, that is the primary teaching of the New Testament. When Paul was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he was talking about his own persecution. This is what he said. You know this. He said to Timothy, you have followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, Paul said, yet from them all what? The Lord rescued me. How? He brought Paul up on eagle's wings. He swallowed up the floodwaters against Paul. And then he says this in verse 12, listen, to the church, to Timothy and to you and to me, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be what? Persecuted. We will be persecuted. And so John's emphasis here in Revelation 3 is not flight, and it's not fight, it's stay a course. It's endure the suffering as a Christian. Look at verse 10 again. He said, if anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And so the teaching is simple, but as freedom-loving Americans, with our civil rights, and our, we don't like to hear this. We don't like to hear that the governments have authority uh, under the influence of Satan to persecute God's people, to arrest us, and to kill us. And yet Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they what? Maybe they'll persecute you. No, he said, they will. They will persecute you. Fleeing persecution. It's not isolated to a struggle that we're having here in the United States. The Middle East right now, if you don't know about this, is struggling from many Christians leaving that area because the persecution it's real persecution. It's not like what we experience here. Tufik Belinke, the president of In Defense of Christians, he commented on the United States effort. The, the United States, going back to 2016, actually started moving Christians out of hostile areas in the Middle East and bringing them to the United States for safety. And this is what he writes. He said, this is well-meaning, but very misguided. He said, in a way... It, the United States, has completed the work of ISIS by eradicating Christians from the region. Took, took them out completely. Imad Shahadab, he's president of the Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. He requires, listen to this, he requires every student receiving a scholarship to sign a document pledging to stay in the area. He writes, quote, too many Christians are leaving, he said, while it's easy to understand because the persecution is so, so severe, Having a Christian witness in difficult places is indispensable precisely because they are difficult places. You gotta stay. He's right. Although flight and fight is permissible in some situations, the overwhelming teaching in the New Testament is what? Stay and testify. Stay and be a witness. Stay and what? Help all those who are enslaved to the beast, who are worshiping the beast, be set free in Christ. Look at the latter part of verse 10. John says, so here's a call. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. To endure, stay in faith. That word endurance in the Greek, it literally means to remain under. And so they're being called to remain under persecution. Even though they're going to be imprisoned and even though they're going to be put to death, he says, stay the course. For 2,000 years, our brothers and sisters in Christ have endured and they have suffered, many with their own lives. But when they do, some extraordinary things happen. My beloved, when a Christian stays the course in the midst of persecution, when the beast or a government's after them because they profess Christ, they testify 
to the world of their commitment to God. They testify to the world of their love for God. Rather than fleeing, the world sees them as being seriously committed to Jesus Christ. And that's a testimony. I mean, it's one thing for us to proclaim it. It's another thing for us to go out and share the gospel. But when the world sees that we're being persecuted for our faith, they know we're committed. Even if they don't agree with what we believe, they say that that person's committed to the God they believe in. That person's committed to this Christ they profess when we stay the course, even though we're being persecuted. The great author and pastor, John Bunyan, in the 17th century, most of you know him because of the book Pilgrim's Progress, um, he, was, he spent two lengthy periods in prison for his evangelical profession of faith in Jesus Christ. On one of the prolonged prison terms, he said this, he wrote this, he said, I will stay in prison until the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey my God. I'll stay in prison. And all he had to do was recant. And he, went, he could go home to his family and children. And he would not. He endured and he suffered for a greater good. And when we do that, my beloved, when we stay a course for a greater good, which is the gospel and Christ, people around us not only see our love for God and our commitment to Jesus, but you know what else they see? They see your love for them. If you're being persecuted and you have the ability to flee and you stay the course in their midst, they see that they're important I want you to think about it for a minute. Think about all the people in your mission field who do not know Jesus Christ. All those people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They belong to Satan. They worship the beast. They are enslaved. Family, friends, maybe a a spouse, maybe a child. Certainly many of your neighbors, certainly most of your coworkers. What communicates a greater love for their soul? You staying this course and loving them and serving them and sharing Christ, or are you taking off and going to another place, another state? What testifies to the love of Christ more to them? You staying here or wherever it's hard and bringing that gospel to them, or are you going to a place? It's amazing to me. Um, if, I, if, if we flee to places, states, the red states, you all know the states that will soon become purple, all those red states where we go to have greater protection. If Revelation 12 and 13 is in fact Satan using governments to persecute Christians, where do you think he's going to go? What do you think is going to happen to the the governments of Idaho or Tennessee or Texas? What do you think is going to happen? Will he not go where there are more Christians? Will he not go to those governments and use the bees to persecute them? I think he will. I think the flight is foolish not only because it's contrary to the gospel, but I think it plays right into Satan's hands. When God calls true Christians to endure, he calls us to endure in faith. Look at verse 10 again, the latter part. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is your greatest weapon, my beloved. Your faith in knowing that God is what? That God is sovereign and that God is good. If God is sovereign and God is good, Then when persecution comes, when you are put in jail, when death looms at your door, you know that he is sovereign and he is good and that all the authority that Satan and the dominions of darkness have are under him. They do nothing apart from his absolute sovereign decree. Then you know that your suffering is not in vain. You know it's not by chance. It's not bad luck. It's not because you live in San Jose. It's been decreed by God. And if it's decreed by God, and God is sovereign, and God is good, and you belong to God, then it is good for you too. As hard as that is to hear, it's good for you too. Verse 10 said, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. In other words, these things are decreed to take place. You say, how do I know that? That's a proverbial statement drawn directly from Jeremiah chapter 15. And in Jeremiah 15, 2, the proverb says this. Jeremiah says, those who are destined for captivity, to captivity they go. And those who are destined for the sword, to the sword they go. Who destines anyone? Only God. Only God. And so, my beloved, if you are destined for captivity because of your proclamation for Christ, it is because of God and therefore it is good. 
If you are destined to suffer to the point of death for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is decreed by God and therefore it is good. Not good for your career, not good for your education, maybe not good for your family on earth, but it is good because it glorifies God, it magnifies Christ, and how good it is for you, my beloved, to be like Bunyan in jail saying, let moss grow on my eyelids before I dishonor or disobey my God, or better yet, you're taken home. You get to leave this place where Satan roams, and you get to be brought into the place where he has been cast out. It's good for you, no matter what. God is sovereign, and God is good. Now, I know I've been long. Please forgive me. Uh, I want you to forgive me. I do. Um, I, I, I got I to end with this, though. We want to be realists, and we talk about seeing reality clearly here in terms of Satan and, and darkness and governments and how we're to live. But you need to be a realist not only in how you live now, but you need to be a realist about your end in Christ. Your end in Christ, fixing your hope, I love this. The Bible says fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your hope is there, your end is there. You do that. You know that your name, if you are in Christ, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's there, written in blood. Can't get out. For all those whose names are in that book, saved by grace, you know, deep down, no matter what happens to you on this side, no matter how much persecution you get from family or friends or professors or or employers, no matter how much you suffer for the sake of the gospel, you know your end. You know it's glory with Christ. You know that he's paid your debt in full. You know that your freedom is already secure, and eternal life is already yours. And that means what, my beloved? That any captivity you experience here, he's already set you free from. Any persecution that even leads to death here, he's already given you eternal life in. Our Lord, we know, he was taken captive, was he not? He was taken captive, and he was nailed to that cross, receiving the wrath of God in your place. He experienced the ultimate captivity. And he did, in fact, experience vicariously our eternal damnation and eternity in hell. And he did it to set you free because your name's written in the Lamb Book of Life. Before anything ever was, he predestined you for this eternity. Because your record has been expunged by the blood of Christ... There is no guilt or no condemnation that stands against you. The blood of Christ has power right now to enable you to endure, to enable you to stay a course, to enable you to remain faithful and testify to Christ in very difficult places. And I must argue, my beloved, this is not one. I know we talk about it as though it is. This is not a difficult place, not yet. It may be harder than other places of our country, but compared to places in the world, Compared to North Korea or Afghanistan or Pakistan, this is not a difficult place. Certainly God has given us the strength in the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit to stand here and to testify here to go to places like San Jose State so that a brother and sister will hear Christ, repent, believe, be saved, and be baptized. What a powerful testimony for us to stay a course And think about the lost here that are subject to the beast and mourn over it and weep over it. There's power in the blood to stay the course and to suffer for the sake of righteousness right here in the South Bay. My beloved, this is the real picture of the world. Satan's home, demonically influenced governments, the unsaved worshiping the world system, all hostile to God, all hostile to his church, all hostile to you. The question for us is how we, will we respond to this truth? Will we, will we join the darkness? Will we try to foolishly flee the darkness? Or will we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, will we endure in faith? Will you stick and stay and testify? Will you be a living testimony to the power of the gospel that transformed you, a beast worshiper to a king worshiper will you stay and testify to that i believe we're called to my beloved 
I believe that's why this lampstand is still here. I'm going to pray to that end right now that we be faithful testimonies in the midst of this darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this truth, for giving us, as you did, John, a vision of life on earth, that we, in fact, are behind enemy lines, that our enemy is fierce, he's ferocious, and he's powerful. He has the power to persuade entire governments and nations. He has the power to captivate the world in worship. And yet, he who is in us is so much greater than he who is in the world. Father, strengthen our church. Make us a people who stay and testify well to the power of the gospel here. I pray, Lord, you would encourage my brothers and sisters to endure Endure any persecution that you decree that comes their way. I pray you would give them the faith and the strength in Christ to do that. Show them their end, Father, that they might live now not holding on to their life so tightly, not loving this life, but truly loving the next. And cause us, Lord, to be the testimonies that you want us to be. I ask that you do this for our blessing as a church. We'll be healthier as a blessing to this community in which we live. And I pray above all else, as always, that you do it for your glory, Father. Cause us to stay fast for Christ. In his name, amen.